0: And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the word of God and turn with me to the New Testament book of Colossians, the New Testament book of Colossians and chapter number one, the New Testament book of Colossians and chapter number one. We're continuing with this, just walking bit by bit. It's taken a little bit to walk through uh, the book of Colossians chapter number one because it lays so much groundwork to help us understand the context and to understand what is going to be presented through the rest of the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to help protect the local church of Colossae that what is occurring is that there is a cult beginning to form inside of the city of Colossae and that if the church is not prepared, the members of that local church are not nailed down, that they're going to be swept away and deceived. And so Epaphras, the pastor of the church of Colossae, went and sought out the apostle Paul and explained. And with this, the book of Colossae is given the game plan, what is needed to be nailed down in the lives of the believers so that way they could not be swayed away, pulled away, dragged away, deceived away by the cults that are beginning to form. With that context in mind, we see that the book of Colossians is a very important book. It's not Uh, a basic believer book like the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John is written to let people know who have been saved what they have in Christ. It's not a beginner book like the gospel record of John, which is written for the purpose to let everyone know that Jesus is God. The book of Colossians dives a little bit deeper into the doctrine of who Christ is and nails it down so the believers can be anchored in their faith. And not be swept away. So, with that in mind, turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter number one. The book of Colossians, chapter one, and notice with me, beginning at verse number 15. The book of Colossians, chapter one, and verse number 15. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven. And that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a very important phrase that we find in the book of Colossians chapter 1? The book of Colossians chapter one and verse 18, notice the phrase that all things he might have the preeminence, that all, in all things he might have the preeminence. And what a powerful phrase. And we're going to learn more about what that phrase means. And in the context, to understand what the scope of it contains, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you, we're just asking that your Bible would be alive, that it would be real, that you would answer yourself through your Bible, through your precious spirit, that we could just understand more about who you are and the doctrine of Christ. Lord, because this is such an important doctrine, I dare not try to sully it with my own thoughts, my own way of explaining it. We have to have you and your spirit to make it clear, to make it manifest, to uh, give us spiritual understanding even now, that you would give us the hearts and minds of all of these men and women here, that they could look up towards you and see you high, holy, and lifted up, that we can learn more about whom you are through your word. That by the time we walk out of here, we'd all be saying, what a great God. Lord, glorify your own name through your word. In your precious name we do pray. Amen. The deity of Jesus Christ is always under attack. We looked in Sunday school this morning in the book of 1 John that it... <laughs> the apostle writes about the spirit of antichrist that prefix anti doesn't just mean against it carries along with it the idea of replacing and that the idea of antichrist is that they're trading in the jesus of the bible with another jesus that the doctrine of Jesus Christ is always under attack because the way that the world works is they try to replace him with a different Jesus. As false doctrine has begun to be introduced to the church of Colossae, Paul dives to the heart of the matter and he reaffirms the absolute deity of the Lord Jesus Christ in two ways. As creator and as sustainer of the universe. So the Apostle Paul rears back and says, let's clear off a spot and let you know that Jesus Christ is God. How do we know that he's God? Because by him, everything was created. And by him, all things consist. He sustains it. He is the creator. In chapter number two, the apostle Paul is going to deal with more of the subtle attacks on the deity of Christ and dealing with the doctrine of salvation. But this is the main purpose here in this passage is that they are trying to nail down who Jesus is. And in case you didn't catch it the first time, Jesus Christ indeed is God. He's not a God. He is God the God, the very same being. He is God. As we dive into here, let's see a couple different things. First of all, let's see the person of God revealed. The person of God revealed. Notice with me if you don't mind in verse 15. It starts off with who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So, notice as it starts off, we see that right away it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, notice as it starts talking about God, it declares him as invisible. Now, this is a terminology that we'd understand that none of us have seen God. He is someone that we can't touch. We can't test. We can't observe. We haven't seen. God is invisible. And so beyond our comprehension because we can't relate to him. Interesting enough, this week I had a young lady, very intelligent young lady, who is uh, trying to put these things together and going to a public school and going with a bunch of people that say God is not real and that she shouldn't believe in God and trying to take away the faith of a little girl. Uh, immediately, just a a precious little girl. And um, so she was trying to say, how do I know that Jesus is God? What a great question. That's something that we need to know. And (laughs) what is the purpose of God? We always talk about a triune God. By the way, see if you could fix your terminology. Instead of saying a trinity, try to say a triune God. Why? A trinity implies, and what people accuse it of, is saying that there are three different gods. We don't believe in three different gods. We believe in one God with three aspects that are relatable to those different areas. So he is a triune God. Tri meaning three. Un means one. A triune God. He is a unity. He doesn't have three separate parts. He is the same God with three different aspects of that same God. That may help a little bit, but Taking God the Father, the one that we normally think about God, God is beyond our human comprehending. He is someone we cannot relate to because we can't see him, we can't relate to him, we can't touch to him. Uh, There's a a little bit of a difference. Now, I like science, so maybe you could do something scientific. I did this with a little girl, so if it helped a little girl, it should be able to help you. I want you on your page, uh, just a piece of paper, I would like for you to start with a dot right? so just start with a little dot on a page. Now we're gonna get into math and science, so don't worry, the world won't cave in, it's gonna be fine. If you took that dot and you squared that dot, everybody know what a square is, right? When you take the number and and multiply it by itself. So if you take a dot and square it by itself, what you're gonna do is have a horizontal line. So everyone have that dot and then put a horizontal line, okay? We're gonna call that line, we're gonna call that (coughs) width, all right? So if we were to start that, we would have what is called width, right? If you're gonna take that line and you were to square that line, you would now fill that in as a square. So you start it from a dot, zero dimensions, you go to the first dimension of width, And add a second dimension, you now add height. So you should have a square. All right? Some of you may have not been taught those basics, but you may start here. What happens when you square a square? You get a cube. Very good. So we add another dimension, which is called depth. So for those who are artists, you put out the little legs at three of the sides, and they connect them, and you get a 3D image. All right? right? So now we have a third dimension. First dimension is width, then you add length, and then you add depth. Now, for those science people, we go beyond math to science. If you take a cube and you square that, what do you get? Anybody? My science people? You get something called duration. Another word of duration is called time. The fourth dimension is time. So you can't do anything with that because now that concept goes beyond visible. We are three-dimensional beings who perceive a fourth. We can't move up and down the fourth, we can only perceive the moving of one direction of fourth. Does it make sense? So we are three-dimensional creatures, right? Don't you have width? Some of us have more width than others. We have height, some of us have more height than others. And then we also have depth. Some of us have more depth than others, all right? So (laughs) we're we're three-dimensional beings. We have three sides to us, right? Width, height, and depth. But we are stuck in these three dimensions. Now, these three dimensions, we can move. We can move up and down, left and right, back and forth, right? We can move three dimensions. But you can only move one dimension In time, or one direction in time, which is forward. As much as you would like, you can't go backwards. You're stuck, right? You're limited. Well, God is not limited in time. In fact, all of time fits within the palm of his hand. Now, knowing that God has all of time in the palm of his hand, he already becomes unrelatable to us because we can't understand that. We can't understand the concept of forever. We can't understand the concept that God didn't have a beginning. He created time. He was outside of time and has continued outside of time. That just blows our mind. We have a hard time relating to that. By the way, God goes beyond those dimensions. Those are the four right there. He goes beyond that. He is incomprehensible to us. He is unknowable because we can't understand him. Does that make sense? So let's imagine that we have a two-dimensional creature that perceives three. This is Mr. Flat. Hi, Mr. Flat. Hi, guys. I just got out of junior camp. Can't you tell? All right. So this here, Mr. Flat, is a two-dimensional creature that perceives three. If I was to place my finger here and Mr. Flat give a look at me, could he perceive all of me? Could he understand all of me? He can only understand a small concept of me. Does that make sense? So he can't know all of me. And if we take Mrs. Flat here, (laughs) and she gets a different view of me, right? Because they have two different views. They argue and fight, and they start the church of the one finger and the church of the two fingers and whatnot. Does it make sense? People have a misunderstanding. So... The thing that we have and we understand start off with is that God cannot be understood as God. He is beyond our human comprehending. However, God wants to be known. God wants us to know him. So what G- God did is that he robed himself in flesh and dwelt among us he never stopped being God. He never set aside his deity. He still was God and still had all the attributes of God. The only difference is that he robed himself in flesh and dwelt among us so that way we, as pathetic humans with no understanding, could sort of know who God is. So we start off with this. Jesus Christ is God, but he humbled himself so we can know who God is. So we could perceive and have an understanding of who God is because God wants to be known. Does that make sense? That's who Christ is. He is God robed in flesh. Notice again in verse number 15, who is the image of, Of the invisible God. God is invisible and unknowable. God put on flesh. So he can make the unknowable knowable. So he could take the one that was invisible. And turn him visible. So we can know who God is. What a wonderful savior. That he wants us to know him. He's not some mysterious God. That nobody can know about. He wants to be known. Because God wants fellowship. God is an eternal and invisible God beyond our comprehension. But God wanted us to know him. Now, for those who don't accept Christ, this is where idolatry comes in. Because they can't grasp God, they have to somehow invent something so they could relate to God. Whether it's a golden calf or whether it's a guy with a big belly whether it's some system or something, they are always trying to do something to understand and try to put God in a way that they can understand it. Well, because God knew how that man was looking for something, he says, here you go, I'll give you Christ so you can understand him. You don't have to worry about a different image. You don't have to worry about an idol. You don't have to worry about something that's fake. Let me give you something that's real, the expressed image of who God is. God wanted to be known. Remember that God could not bring God, a man to himself. So he came down to man so he could be relatable. And that way we could understand how much God truly loved us. Think about this. God being an invisible God, even if he could speak from heaven, he could say, I love you. And you could hear a voice. I love you. Okay, great. Wonderful. But that's a hard time to understand just words. He says he loves me. Okay. I, I, I'm trying to relate because I meant we could see expressions of love, but can you see love? I mean, it's like someone throwing an invisible kiss and oh, I got it. I mean you're throwing some imagination in there. How do we know that God loves us? He could say it over and over. I love you. I love you. I love you. How do we know he loves you? Because he made himself relatable. He robed himself in flesh and then took the price that we owed God and he took it upon his body and he didn't have to. He did it because he loved us. And now every one of us knows that he loves us because he proved it. For God commendeth his love towards us and why we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. God took an inconceivable concept of love and made it flesh so we could understand God. That he loves us. That's what Christ is. He is the expressed image of an invisible God. So we could relate to God and understand God. And see what God has for us. And see that God does love us. This is also why Jesus can say to his disciples in the gospel record of John chapter 14 and verse 9. He said, he that hath seen me hath seen the father. Because when you know who Christ is, you also know who God is. Because they're the same people. What God is like, Jesus is like. All of God's attributes, Jesus has those same attributes. He never set aside being God. In fact, in the Bible, it's amazing that Jesus knew what people thought. That's what God does. Jesus had the ability to forgive others. But do you know that Jesus also was everywhere at once while he was still robed in flesh? Don't turn there. But in John chapter three, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he's saying the same time I'm talking to you, I'm also up in heaven, currently present tense. Why? Because he's still God. He's everywhere at once. He has all the attributes of God at the same time. He's omniscient, all powerful, all knowing, and everywhere at once, all present. God knows everything. Everything that God is, Jesus is. He is the expressed image. Jesus was human without ceasing to be God. He wasn't 50% God and 50% human. He was 100% God and 100% human. This is Jesus Christ relating to us. Now, as we come into here, we see a little bit more. Notice if you don't mind, it says in verse 15, who, was, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Now this is where cults start having fun. They like that phrase and they try to say something that Jesus Christ was the first created being. That's not what the idea of the firstborn of every creature means. It carries with it, especially with the context, it's going to go on saying he's the creator God. The f- phrase the firstborn of every creature is understood as the firstborn over all creation, making him superior superior. And distinct from the entire species, an entire sphere of created beings. Any Jewish person at Colossae would understand this phraseology. That because God is invisible and unknowable, he also has to be separate from his creation. And because he's the creator, he's separate from his creation. Him being the firstborn of, that word of doesn't just mean that he's the one who caused it. Or... <laughs> It means that it's his, he's got the ownership of it. For example, you may say that you are um, from a place, you're of Texas, you're of America. Here it's talking about Jesus Christ is the firstborn of creation. He is the one who is the instigator, the one who caused all creation. He is the one who is the creator. He was related to creation because he was the creator, the mighty maker, but yet he was distinctly removed far from it for the same reason that he was the creator of it. That's what that idea, that phrase, it's a big theological phrase, the firstborn of the creator, created. It's not saying he was the first created being and then he created everything else. He's saying that he is the one who created everything, he is the first cause of it. He is the one who brought it together and he is yet separate from it. With this, let's now hit not only the person of God revealed, but let's see the power of God revealed. The power of God revealed. Notice with me in verse number 16. Book, uh, verse number 16. It says, For by him, this is speaking about Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth the earth visible and invisible whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers all things were created by him and for him now the idea that Christ created the world bothers many people because of the conclusion that it leads to what's the conclusion that if there is a creator, then, then that creator has every right to demand what he wants from his creation. It means that he is boss. This is why creation is always under attack. Because people don't want to acknowledge that someone created them and that they have to stand before him and give an account. That if he created them, he has every right as the sovereign creator to decide what he wants to do with his creation he is in charge he is the boss by the way life is not all about us Amen. it's all about him it's all about him science has made it clear that the universe had a beginning scientific calculations even einstein's theory of relativity proves that that the world had a beginning without a doubt time had a beginning matter Had a beginning. Now that implies if it had a beginning. How did it begin? That's what's under debate. Whether somebody says creation. Or whether they say that it made itself. Like the big bang. This debate becomes passionate. Not because of the facts. But because of the conclusions. Either God is God. And has the right to tell us what to do. Or God is not God. And he doesn't get to tell me what to do. That's the conclusion. That's the whole debate. It's not under the idea of science. It's all about emotions and feelings. Does God have the right to tell me what to do? This is why creation science is very important under thing. The main problem with origins, of course, is that none of us were there. None of us were there. None of us saw it. We have to rely on the testimony of someone who was a witness. For example, When you took science class, many of us were taught evolution. You could raise your hand and say, excuse me, teacher, was you there? No. Well, then how do you know it's true? Because my professor taught me. Okay. Excuse me, was he there? No, he wasn't there. Well, then how does he know it's true? Because his professor taught him. Was he there? Nobody was there. There was no human there. We can only rely on the testimony of someone who was there, and that's Jesus. Jesus was there, and he explained what happened at creation because he's the one who did it. Everything there outside of the testimony of Jesus now becomes speculation and away from an eyewitness. Jesus was the eyewitness. That's the big deal. For most people, Jesus isn't big enough to be the creator. People like Christ being a small God. One that can't be their judge. But also, that also means that he's also too small to take care of the problems. So they're not going to depend on Jesus for their problems. That's one of the problems (laughs) that we have is that they see Jesus being so small. He's so tiny. Whether he's a little baby or is he suffering savior. He's someone that, oh, sure, we could talk to and relate to, but he can't take care of my problems. But if he's the creator of the world, he could definitely take care of my problems. Do you think the creator of the world has any financial issues? Do you think uh, the creator of the world has an enemy too big that he can't deal with? Our God is a big God. And a God who could take care of anything we could ever face. The problem that you may have may look so big in your eyes. But look past that problem and see the God behind it. And you could see that problem is so small compared to God. Jesus Christ is God. That's why him being the creator is a big deal. If he created the universe and created it so well. Then definitely he could take care of my problems as well. But when we don't get to the place where we feel like God could take care of our problems, we have a small God and that God falls short of so many different areas. We know that we live in a complete universe. We live in a great panorama of creation, a harmony of creation, that it's not just one thing, but we have so many aspects of science working together that if one of them was off, the whole thing could not function. And it is a complicated system. Our world is not a simple system. It is a complicated system. Even looking in our world, our world spins just at the right direction. If it spun any less or too much, life could not exist. Our world is placed right at the right uh, distance from the sun. Any closer it would be too hot. Any further it would be too cold. There are so many areas that have to work together in harmony. And that if one of those things are not in harmony, they're not separate systems, they work together. The world could not exist. It is a complex system with a complex designer who knew what he was doing. He put all of those things in there. We know that it has so many laws of science that not all the people can know the laws of science. But Christ knows them all because he invented them all we see that Christ is before all things. Notice what it says here in verse number 16. For by him were all things created that were in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers or all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. If you've never marked that phrase, maybe you should. That phrase carries with it the idea that God is always previous. That he is before all things. That means before you ever had a need, God already had the answer to it. There was a need of salvation. And God didn't wait till you had a need. He already had Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. Salvation in Calvary was not plan B. It was always plan A. He always had that in mind. That before you have a need, God already had an answer for it. There's so many times that maybe you and I had a financial need and we say, Lord, can you please take care of it? And then we open the mail and someone sent a check and it just happened to be there. Someone didn't hear about our need, said the check. God already had worked and sent that check to us before we realized we had that need. God was always at work. God is always previous. That's how big of a God he is. He's not a reactor, reactory God. He is a God that's always at work. Maybe you have a young man or a young woman who's praying to get married. God doesn't hear your prayer and then start saying, well, I'm gonna start working on this person now. He's already working in that person before you start praying for them and preparing for the right time for you to meet. What a great God. Before you have a need, God has already knows how he's gonna meet that need, that he is before all things. God is always previous. That's the big God that we have. We're not having a God that we have to catch him up on the news in our prayers. And then he goes, oh, I didn't know about this. Let me figure out what I'm going to do about it. God already knows. He's just trying to get us involved with what he is already doing. When we complain about the government to God, God, what are you going to do with our nation? He goes, oh, I better get right on this. He already has something in plan, already something in mind. We saw that in the book of Habakkuk when Habakkuk's complaining about his government. And say, God, you see everything going on? And God says, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, but you're not going to believe me. What are you going to do? Ye among the heathen. What? They're worse than we are. I told you you wouldn't believe me. God is always previous. Before you ever had a need, God had already met it. That's the big God that we have. That's the God that we could trust for every single thing in our life. My wife prays for parking spots in front of Walmart. Sometimes that's a big miracle. But God already knew that she had that and can already prepare for it before she gets there. It's amazing. My wife never has to wait for a parking spot. Me, I park in the boonies because I said I just need the walk. She goes, no, I want to be right up close my wife prays for sales. She gets all of our clothes and all of our needs on just bargain base. She goes, look, they're having a special half off, 75% off, 80% off. she had already been praying beforehand and God had just said, hey, I already had this. God didn't wait for her to pray for Sears to decide, hey, we're having out of business sale. You already put them out of business. I mean... God had already worked on these things beforehand. God is always previous. When we're praying, we're not trying to tell God and get him caught up. He's saying, I'm just waiting for you to catch up to me. Let me show you what I'm going to do. We're not twisting God's arm. He's trying to get us involved with what he's already got planned. That's the big God that we have. God is always previous. Notice again, verse number 17. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. You understand that it is by Christ all things exist? I like science. You're starting to say, we're doing a lot of science stuff. I know, but God's the God of science, so we can't divorce it. For those of you who remember studying things like an atom, let's see if we can remember class. An atom is made up of three major parts. What are the parts, class? Very good. Protons, neutrons, and electrons. A proton has what type of charge? Electron has a? And a neutron is? Neutral. Alright. So inside of an atom you have the electrons that are swirling on the outside. You say, how far of a distance? If you could put an atom and enlarge it the size of Lambeau Field, The electrons would be swinging around the outside of Lambeau Field while the actual core of that atom would be a soccer ball in the middle of the field. Now, inside of the uh, nucleus of an atom, you have two particles. They are? Proton and neutron. Now, for those of you who helped a magnet before, what happens if you put two poles together? Two positives and you try to put them together. So, you have all positive charges and neutral charges. Does neutral charges attract or repel? So if you have inside of a nucleus all positive charges, what are its natural indications to repel? Scientists have still studied for this year. They have theories, but they cannot explain why in the world an atom does not explode. Because it should be repelling that nucleus because it's all positive charges. They should be repelling. They should be exploding. By the way, that's the basic theory of an atomic bomb. Is that you get a nucleus with a big enough mass and you take an electron to hit it. And all of a sudden it breaks apart whatever bonds are holding those things together. But scientists have theories, but they cannot explain why something that is a repelling charge is staying together. What forces are holding together, especially since those forces, even though they're so small, they are explosive. They want to explode. And yet the atom consists together. Stable. And how do you know it's stable? Because you're not blowing up. You're made up trillions of atoms trillions of cells with much more atoms and you're not blowing up you have a stable nature you're not losing coherency you're not like melting your hands not turning into a puddle you may feel like it especially in the last two days uh, two weeks of the the humidity that hit but you are staying together how do you stay together scientific biblical reason Jesus holds everything together. By him, all things consist. He's the one that keeps everything from falling apart. I know there are a lot of people that don't like that answer, but it's better than whatever scientific theory they come up with. Well, we just don't know why they're staying together. Maybe it's because of this, but we can't explain it. And we just don't have any other thing. Well, they believe in nothing and I believe in God. How about that? Especially since the Bible says all things consist. By the way, that's just one illustration. There are many things that show that Christ keeps things together when they should be natural forces exploding apart. Think about that. What an amazing God that we have. By Him, all things consist. That word consist carries with it the idea of cohere. All things cohere together, everything doesn't fall apart. Not only the atoms, but the galaxies of space. That's a whole different thing of astrophysics. They should be exploding all apart, and they're not. The forces of motion, magnetism, gravity, and electricity are all held in balance by him. Think gravity is a a force that pulls you downward. Why come we're not sucked into the middle of the earth? Right? There are all kinds. We deal with the laws of science, and God has them all in harmony, all in balance, all held together by Him. Amazing. Which brings us to one last thing the purposes of God revealed. So, we talked about the person of God revealed, the power of God revealed. Now we see the purposes of God revealed. What is the purpose? Notice if you don't mind in verse number 18. And he, this is Christ, is the head of the body, the church. Now we could see that Christ is the head of the body, the church. We let's put it this way as we try to emphasize each word. He, with a special emphasis on he, on Christ, is, which is an undying fact, he is the head. This is the inspiring, controlling, deciding, and sustaining power. He is the head of the body, which is linked to him, the head in organic body. The church, which by the way, is the instrument, which through he assessed, (coughs) uh, the instrument, which he assesses his headship on earth and in the heavenlies. So he is the head of the body, the church. So what is the church? Well, the New Testament gives us three helpful illustrations that we could try to see and understand about this local New Testament church. It shows that he is the head, uh, or sorry, that the church is likened to a building which Christ is the foundation of, that everything is built off the foundation of Christ. The church is likened to the New Testament as the bride who has Christ as her groom, The church is likened to a body with Christ as the head. The church, by the way, a good definition is a group of baptized believers who voluntarily gather themselves together for the purpose of accomplishing the Great Commission. That Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's got a goal, he's got a purpose, and he's working. He has something in mind. Jesus is also the firstborn of the dead. Notice this. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, this is a great phrase too. Jesus Christ was the first one who was raised in the dead like him. Now, beforehand, there are some other people who were raised from the dead. We take a Lazarus. Did Lazarus raise from the grave before Jesus did? Yes. Now, the difference is, is that Jesus never died again. The people who were raised from the grave just moved their death date. Lazarus died again. He he only had a small reprieve from the grave. But then he died again. Jesus Christ arose and ascended to heaven and is alive forevermore. He never died and never will die. He is the firstborn of the dead. And because he lives, we have the undying hope, the living hope. That Jesus Christ is going to raise us up to be with him too. We have the hope of eternal life because of what Jesus Christ has done for him. That hope. Now notice there's one more phrase we want to see here in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now it's talked about Jesus Christ has the power of God, that Jesus Christ is the revealed image of God, that by him, all things were created by all things consist that he is the head of the body. He is the groom of the church. He is the foundation of this building. He is all of these things. So we could say one thing that he might have the preeminence Let's define this idea of preeminence. Some people give a weak definition of preeminence saying that he's the top of the list. And they teach that, well, you just need to keep Jesus the top of your list. He needs to be the top of everything that you do. And that you need to think of Jesus first. I understand what they're meaning there, but it's not the right definition. The idea of preeminence is this, that he's the one and only on my list. Let me give an example. My wife here, we've been married almost 20 years. If I was to go up to her and say, honey, out of all the women that I love, I love you the most. Does that make her feel better? She wants to hear that I love her like I love no other woman. I love no other woman like her. She has the preeminence of my love. I love no other woman like her. When we have Jesus Christ as the preeminence, we love him like we love nothing else. That we worship him like we worship nothing else. We acknowledge and serve him like we acknowledge and serve nothing else. If he's the preeminence, he is the only one on that list. He's the only one we serve and worship like him. That's why the love songs we sing to Christ is different than the love songs I would sing to my wife. Because the love I have for him is different and unlike the love I have for my wife. That all things he might have the preeminence. Why? Because he is God robed in flesh. He's the God who proved his love. It's the God who created. He's the God who's going to judge me. He's the God who creates everything and keeps it consisting and keeps it together. He is the God who is always previous that has already answered my prayers before I even realized I had the need. Because of that, we should acknowledge him like we acknowledge no one else, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Why? Verse number 19, for it pleased the father that in him, Christ, should all the fullness dwell. It pleased the father that Jesus Christ should have the fullness of the sum of all God's power. To be dwelt or permanently in Him. That Jesus Christ is indeed God. And we should worship Christ as God and worship and serve Him like we serve nothing else. Love and serve Him like we love and serve nothing else. That in all things He has the preeminence. Why? Because He is a big God. Which brings us to the basic question how big is your God? Is your God big enough to tell you what to do? Is your God big enough to answer all your prayers? Is your God big enough to have your best interest at heart? Or do you have a small God that you can take his suggestions and if you like it, you'll do it. But if not, I have my choice to do whatever I want. Is he big enough to solve your problems or, eh, Lord... I don't even bother praying to you because I don't even trust you to take care of this problem for me. How big of a God do you serve? Do you know if God is really big and you have a personal relationship with him, nobody can lie to you about your God. But if your God is small, then it's very easy for people to deceive you about who God is. See, if you want to be nailed down and not be swept around with bad doctrine... You need to see Christ as a big God. So again, how big is your God to you? Is he a big God or is he a small God? You said, what do I do about this preacher? Well, perhaps the first thing you should do is say, Lord, open my eyes that I may see how big you are. Help me to understand what a great God that you are. If your God's a big God, then you should also be able to say, Lord, whatever you tell me to do, no matter what it is, I'll obey because you are a big God. You see, that's the, the, the rubber meeting the road. That's, that's the true indication. You could talk all you want. What is the evidence that your God's a big God? Whatever he tells you to do, you're willing to obey.